a free and fair economy is essential to democracy. And it's in fact true that democracies do better where, um, you know, the people are in control of what they want. You know, why is a corporation deciding who is, you know, the the representative of thousands, if not, you know, on a presidential level, millions? Um, And and more so, the more we attach our vote to our everyday lives and, and change of that, you know, we'll see a change of where the money goes in politics. Hello, I'm Tanya Scott Williams, host of Why It Matters, Black Alabamians and the Vote, an Alabama Humanities Alliance podcast. And you just heard from Ms. Arne Odoms, Alabama coordinator for Black Voters Matter, an organization dedicated to increasing power in marginalized, often rural and small predominantly black communities, not just on election day, but in broader civic engagement. Join us as we discuss the past, present and future of the ongoing struggle for equal citizenship as we close out our podcast series exploring Black Alabamians' long fight to fully engage in the electoral process. We'll lead in, as always, with Ms. Jones, followed by the conversation with Ms. Odoms. All right, Tanya, thank you so much. Um, This has truly been a wonderful experience to be here with you for all these episodes. And I wanted to start tonight with a poem um, that sort of tells the story of how all of these things maybe began. Um, It's called Manifest Destiny. And those of you who know your history know what that reference is. Um, So just settle in and listen to this tale of of our country um, and our society at large. Manifest Destiny. And so he learned that the land could be called a name. So he called it mine. And so he learned it could be bordered with blood and he called it conquest. And he learned that the land was willing to give fruit and flower and he called it profit. And so he saw some other folk planting and praising and he called them enemy. And so he saw there were armies to guard those flowering folk and he called them prey. And so he saw the ocean, and what was it but a highway to make more borders? And so he saw the bright and peaceful sea, and he littered it with trade, the bodies stacked next to the crops, textiles, and the rot of disease. And so he ground hope and God into dust and called it right. And so he heard the wind blowing joy over its people, and he sliced it up with law. And so he kept slicing for 500 years. And so he built his things around him. And so his coffers never emptied. And so he took wives and made children. And so he gave them too a price. And so he saw each blade of grass and counted it as currency. And so his blood was transfused with gold. And so he built a wall around himself to keep his many riches in, the walls encased with bone, even his heart, a fortress of muscle and money. Listen now, your past and future generations, your hoarded hall will spoil where you stand. Thank you. Again, you started us off on a great note. Thank you for that. 
democracies depend on the active participation of its citizens in the political process. However, when barriers to the ballot suppress segments of the population, effectively you know, denying them the right to be heard, it undermines the very fabric of a democratic society. But there continue to be organizations that amplify the voices as well as the political power of the supposed disenfranchised communities. Ms. Odoms, it is a pleasure to welcome you to tonight's show. Thank you, Tanya. And I'd also just like to thank Laura Anderson with Alabama Humanities for inviting me on uh, to discuss such an important topic. Um, I look forward to this conversation. Yes, yes, this is this is an important uh, subject, and I look forward to having this conversation with you. So we're just gonna we're gonna dive right in because it's always amazing to me how the time goes by so fast. Exactly. Uh, I, I want to <laughs> take advantage of everything that I can get with you tonight. Yeah. Um, so since the November 2020 election, presidential election, a, a number of lawmakers. Uh, have responded to that election around the country by introducing new restrictive voting bills, or in some cases, these bills have been passed uh, to essentially suppress uh, the vote with states like Arizona, Georgia, and Texas leading the way uh, in this effort. Uh, I want to ask you, what issues are they supposedly addressing with this legislation, and what is the real impact on the voting public? So, Tanya, the issues that they would say they are addressing with legislation that um, puts a hurdle in front of some dis, uh, disenfranchised communities is voter fraud. And there has been no data that shows that there was any inkling of any voter fraud with the November election. Um, in fact, the last known uh, case of voter fraud was... Um, in California, and that was based on the Republican Party. Um, and Black Voters Matter is actually nonpartisan, but you know, facts are facts. And so, what that does to marginalized communities and disenfranchised communities is that that actually puts on another form of oppression and what we like to call voter suppression, especially in our rural counties. Um, that tip that typically does not go into law until years later when everybody has forgotten. And then when we're looking up and there's been purges of voters, especially here in Alabama, um, over the last years, well, actually over the last three months, over 5,000 voters were purged from a roll in, here in Alabama um, in State Senate District 26. And no one's talking about that because the legislation was passed many years ago and mm -hmm. it, it has taken effect now. Um, but I do applaud all of the organizations that are on the ground currently fighting legislation that is in state houses now because that's when we need to, you know, stand up because we will have been moved on from it and then we see the effects from it, which we're seeing now in Alabama. Absolutely. And, and concerning some of the uh, reasons for some of these restrictive laws, for instance, you mentioned, you know, voter fraud. You know, if we just look at 2020, that election period, we were dealing with a pandemic, which forced us to change the way that we went about the voting process. And um, my understanding from understanding from reports after that is this is probably one of the safest uh, elections that we've had in in uh, in 
in, in years and, it, and the guidelines that were put in place really helped to assure that this was a, an election where people were free to vote um, without uh, some of those hindrances. And this was sort of a, a protected vote, even in a pandemic. Okay. Some may say that, but here um, I see it as those guidelines were actually very restrictive. Um, in just for example, here I'm on the ground in Alabama and we are required to have two witnesses and a notary. And so that during a pandemic was difficult to do, especially for elders who were most affected and at risk for a potential um, exposure to COVID-19. And so the laws that were put in place to make it safer actually were more restrictive for the disenfranchised. And a lot of people don't discuss that part, but you know, it's true. Um, and even if it was a safe election, which we are happy to have those, and you know, that is what we're we're fighting for, free and fair elections, we also don't want to continue to put barriers in front of communities that have been traditionally marginalized from the process of um, democracy. Absolutely. So speaking of some of those restrictions, specifically, you mentioned some that happened here in Alabama. What have been some of the, the impacts of those uh, in, in certain communities, maybe some of the counties here in Alabama? What have you seen? Well, many people were just discussing the fact that they weren't uh, aware of the application process to even apply for absentee ballots, which were very popular in this last election. Okay. Um, and if you were at home and you were attempting to download that particular ballot and you were in per se a rural area where broadband connection and internet um, access is low, how were you going to access that ballot? As well as the, the clerk's office being so far away from your home and um, you don't have a vehicle to make it there. And you're trying to social distance in your community where there is little to no tra public transportation. Um, so we heard a lot of stories about, you know, just people having the smallest issue that would seem small to um, a citizen of, per se, Birmingham versus um, Lowndes County, okay. where we have access to public transportation here in Birmingham. They don't. You know, we have access to multiple libraries within a few miles. They don't. Mm -hmm. And we actually partnered with Time Magazine to kind of expose that um, hurdle that people were having for um, trying to participate in the last election. So you mentioned uh, collaborating with Time Magazine to expose yeah. some of those uh, some of those issues. What other measures are being put in place to push back against some of these practices? Because it's true in large uh, cities where you know access to Wi-Fi and the internet and all those things are, are taken for granted. Right. The challenges in small and rural communities is very unique. Uh, so in those areas, what, what processes are being put in place to kind of push back against what, to many people, seemed like it was streamlining the process to protect people during a, a pandemic, which you just pointed out actually added additional barriers yeah. to people who live in some of these communities? So currently um, here at BVM, we're focused on the John Lewis Advancement Act, which is federal legislation, HR4, and helping to um, get that passed and kind of curtail, not kind of, curtail the, uh, the barriers that were placed in front of marginalized communities um, due to Shelby V. Holder um, 
you know, and the decision that was made from that court case of federal oversight. And that would replace those uh, measures so that we won't have to deal with new voter um, laws that are restricting, especially in southern states that typically will just take advantage of any opportunity that they have to um, make the ballot safer. So the language is making it safer when, in right. fact, uh, the the outcome or the evidence seems to indicate otherwise. Right. Yeah. And so we'll be having a May 8th day of action uh, hosting a voter cave from Selvington Montgomery just to bring some awareness to that legislation being passed, well, introduced by Congresswoman Terry Sewell this year. And hopefully um, we can take protests to policy. That is the main goal of our moving forward with any issues that we are trying to address, turning our protests into policies. Excellent. So I know that uh, voting rights organizations are you know, regrouping. Uh, 2020 was exhausting for a lot of reasons, uh, but certainly the buildup you know, leading to the presidential election you know, just took a lot of energy to get across that line. And, you know, as you clearly pointed out, there's some issues that many of many uh, uh, voters uh, who were in more privileged positions weren't aware of. Right. Um, so what are some of the um, you mentioned some things that you guys are working on, the John Lewis Advancement Act and some other issues. What other things are organizations using to, to mobilize the community and to speak to some of the tactics, especially, as I said, I mean, just hundreds of new restrictive, many of them, I mean, changing uh, it, it, things that we were concerned about before, like changing voting uh, places. No, it's beyond that. It's, you yeah. know, voter ID laws and all these right. things. There's just hundreds of them that are coming out. Right. What, uh, what are you all doing to organize communities so that you can be able to address those uh, tactics? Because a lot of state houses are closing. That legislative process is coming right. to close probably this month. So right. what's in place right now? Uh, corporate pressure. <laughs> Okay. That is our main agenda. We are holding corporations accountable. If you're going to donate to, you know, legislatures that legislators, sorry, that are, you know, supporting, restricting our access to democracy and to the ballot, you know, we're going to hold you accountable for that because essentially the consumer is who keeps you in business. And if the consumer quits consuming and we advise them on, you know, just the amount of money that you're using that they support you with to support things that, you know, restrict them and their lives, um, you know, you will get some change eventually, if not now. Um, And we've had a few corporations to come out in favor of, you know, well, in opposition to um, the legislation that occurred in Georgia. And I'm assuming that we'll get the same results in Florida where we're holding Disney accountable. Mm. You know, Corporations sometimes seem to play both sides of the fence. Right. They're, they're, this is a time, however, as you just said, that um, the pressure to get them to respond to to be, you know, for the most part, on the right side of history is increasing. Uh, but you know, we have politicians who are saying, you know, they want polit- uh, corporations to stay out of politics. Now, what does that look like? What does that really mean, especially when corporations have supported so many politicians in their in their bid for office? It's not going to happen. You know, it's it's at this point, they're so interwoven and they're what we call dark money. However, all expenditures made to campaigns are public. 
And, and, you know, that is what we fall. I mean, that's what we are hinging our bets on that. If that is made public, what they are donating to these campaigns, then they will eventually stop. We won't, we won't have to ask them to step aside. They will see a hindrance in their business or either the market will shift to the public and to the people, which that's where it should be anyway. Um, you know, a free and fair economy is essential to democracy. And it's in fact true that democracies do better where, um, you know, the people are in control of what they want. You know, why is a corporation deciding who is, you know, the, the representative of thousands, right. if not, you know, on a presidential level, millions? Um, and, and more so, the more we attach our vote to our everyday lives and, and change of that, you know, we'll see a change of where the money goes in politics. Absolutely. Attaching where the, the, the vote to our everyday lives instead of making it this very special time that set aside mm-hmm. seeing it as a part of what's important um, important to us as citizens in this country. Um, we're going to pause just for a minute right here and we're going to bring Ashley Jones back on with us. Um, she has a poem that we've been looking forward to hearing uh, uh, this, uh, this evening and we're going to give her a few minutes to get herself ready for that. And I'm going to come back on with some more questions for you in just a bit. Uh, Ashley, would you introduce your poem and and tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Um, So the poem that I'm going to read today um, is sort of a longer piece. It's in five parts. So y'all bear with me or count down if you need that. Um, And it actually uses text from George Wallace's 1963 inaugural address. Um, I happen to be teaching from this time period, and I read the entirety of the inaugural address. And at the time, uh, we were still in 45 land. And hopefully, y'all know what I mean by that. I don't use the man's name anymore, or I didn't even when he was president. But um, it struck me as so incredible that the words in this speech from 1963 seemed equal to those um, that I was hearing from our quote unquote president, um, you know, in 2019, you know, into 2020. And so this poem, um, talks about what happened or what was you know, going on in 1963, but it also talks about this idea of reparation, which I think is a part of what this conversation across all these episodes has kind of led to. The, the voting rights and the, the freedom of economy that Arne spoke about, that's all a part for me of reparations and what we are owed um, you know, as black people in this country. So this poem is called Reparations Now, Reparations tomorrow, reparations forever. Using text from George Wallace's 1963 inaugural address and also some words from me. One, the governor speaks. Before I begin, patience. My heart, by which I mean my anxious country, will never forget the folks we beat the little lady who couldn't see too well, the blessed opposition, the vote. This debt, this duty to every man, woman, and child. No black shall have his livelihood, his future. We have stolen it away with our happy money, Jefferson Davis's loving blood. Two, Mo Money interlude. Money got mo problems. Money got a Maserati. Money got mo money. 
Money got your mama and your daddy too. Money got no expiration date. Money got pennies and paper cuts. Money got a white man on its face. Money got faces. Money is nothing black. Even the ink is green. Money don't know your name. Money paid the price for our sins, for our freedom. Money got math we can't learn. Money says it trusts in God. What God trusts money? Jesus, money, and Joseph. Money descended from Ham. Money watches us naked. Money curses us rich and poor. Money said separate but equal. Money said three-fifths a man. Money said four score and seven years ago. Three, altar call. The poet reproduces Wallace's exact words. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny. And I say, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Four, praise break. The governor channels the spirit of his God. Riot. Children, you can write that down. Mississippi was a B-29 bomber in this war to stop residential integration. Hypocrisy. Let us send this message. We, tyranny, shall put our heel on the neck of Washington, of those insipid judges who send smoke signals to the White House, those who are not worth the honor of their race. Hear me, Southerners. Your hearts live in the soil of Dixieland. Your rock-ribbed patriotism, your flaming spirit for segregation and freedom has been blessed by God. Alabama is the center of the world. God has given this to us, a heritage of unimpeachable authority and power. This ungodly government, these degenerates are the very opposite of Christ. Children, say a prayer for our dollars, our founding fathers, our faith, our power. Five, a case for reparation. When, Governor, can we enjoy the full richness of the great American dream? My grandmother was a sharecropper. My grandfather beat his black wife and black children. My uncle was arrested for a crime he didn't commit. In America, even the shadows of Black people are Black enough to hide all innocence. Some nights, I dream of being killed like Emmett Till or Trayvon Martin or Sandra Bland or insert Black person's name here. Some nights, I insert my name there. Is that the American dream? Governor, President, mayor, boss man, woman with a cell phone or police badge or bank account, and the skin tender enough to make murder legal, when will you be tired of the taste of Black blood? Sometimes I'm singing a song and you make that feel like death. Sometimes I'm dancing a dance and you make that feel like shame. 
sometimes I'm sitting on my porch just trying to eat a damn melon and you make that feel like I'm selling my black soul. My parents told me I could be anything, even God. That's the least I'm owed. To know I'm worth heaven, yes, but also worth a life on earth. My mother told us we were pretty enough to be dolls, pretty enough to be praised in the book of Barbie. That's the least I'm owed, a face, skin, hair, so obviously, inherently, objectively beautiful. It's frozen in plastic and sold to kids all over America to hug and love and look at with the eyes of dreams. What, you think all I want is money? What, you think money can ever repay what you stole? Give me land. Give me all the blood you ripped out of our backs, our veins. Give me every snapped neck and the noose you wove to hoist the body up. Give me the screams you silenced in so many dark and lustful rooms. Give me the songs you said were yours, but you know came out of our lips first. Give me back Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and Medgar Evers. Give me back the beauty of my hair, the swell of my hips, the big of my lips. Give me back the whole Atlantic Ocean. Give me a never-ending blue and a mule. Thank you. Ashley, can you remind us, what was the name of that poem? Yes, I can. It's Reparations Now, Reparations Tomorrow, Reparations Forever. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank so you. I want to invite Ms. Odoms back on, and um, we will go into the next half of our, my conversation uh, with her. Um, and we're going to talk some about the work. We did talk about it briefly in the first part of, the, of our conversation, but we're going to talk about uh, the work here in Alabama and how uh, organizations are trying to amplify Alabama voices in the, in the political process. And I want to start with your organization, Black Voters Matter, and then um, maybe you can add other groups that you're aware of that you're collaborating with. Uh, some of the work can be reactive, or at least it feels that way. Like right. you've got these things that are happening and suddenly you're having to shift your resources and your energy to just deal with what feels like an assault on voting rights in one section. So you've got this push and pull that's going on constantly. Um, but I'm sure uh, that uh, for your organization, uh, there are proactive strategies that are always going on that are in place right now. Can you share with, uh, with us what some of those are? Well, uh, we focus more, um, at, well, we at Black Voters Matter, <laughs> we focus more so on the grassroots organizers that are already doing work in their community and amplifying their voice by providing tools that they might not necessarily have the funding to secure, or either we provide the funding for them to secure tools. Um, our goal is to create as many organizations as we can that are doing the work in their community on a grassroots level, because our model is centered around them knowing what's best for their community. And at the end of the day, uh, in organizer world, it's, it's really hard to go into a community and tell them what they want um, mm -hmm. and what they need. And, and that's kind of, to some extent, disrespectful. Um, I, could, I could think of um, 
some instances where organizers go into the community and they are not uh, aware of what the community wants and they make a decision on what they think, you know, <laughs> would be right. And the community gives some backlash uh, here in Birmingham and in Selma uh, as of last year. Right. You know, and that had been the case or maybe still is the case in, in some areas where you do have you know, maybe well-meaning organizations that go in and say, look, we want to make this thing happen. And they don't talk to a single person. Uh, they don't speak to the neighbors, you know, let alone the, the, the politicians or the organizations who've been doing the work. So just knowing that your organization is there to, to support, like you said, and provide resources, it helps to really push those people forward so that they can speak on their own behalf. Nobody knows better than a person living in the neighborhood what the neighborhood needs, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that creates long-term reform on a community level, at a local level. Awesome. So, you know, historically, Alabama, you know, we played a role uh, in securing uh, voting rights for for African-Americans. You know, the first thing that folks usually think about is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You know, we were we were all the energy, the the, the 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 fighting to get it done. You know that that impacted the nation, and of course that law outlawed discriminatory voting practices. Uh, how, however, in 2013, unfortunately, you know we were also uh, the state that brought the lawsuit that you know undermined the act. Um, so you know progress is sometimes met with regressive policies. What do you anticipate in Alabama with the work that you're doing? What are you seeing uh, as being the role that this state may play in the coming months, you know, to regain some of that lost ground? Um, Well, currently there is legislation in Montgomery that is banning curbside voting and making mail-in voting more restrictive. And that is, to me, the recoil of Uh, an amazing turnout for the general election, especially here in Alabama. We had some pretty popular races on the, on the ballot. And so if that were to pass, that would make curbside voting illegal or either uh, it would ban curbside voting. And we don't have those laws on the book currently. And so that was an option for us to negotiate with the state last year um, in a major election. Um, Black voters matter also, you know, uh, yes, we did have leg- uh, legal issues in Alabama, and we did sue to where we were able to settle on Saturday voting, which we don't have currently in Alabama anymore. And we're actually negotiating with some of our local clerks to have that option again for statewide elections during or, or either local elections during the pandemic. And so what they're doing is what they always do, make laws more restrictive and harder to change with um, with simple and more complicated or or more complicated legislation. You mentioned before that the role that that Black Voters Matters plays is to not go into communities, you know, telling them what they need and what they want to really just go in and listen and and support, provide resources and information. You mentioned uh, earlier some of the obstacles that many people may not think about is something as simple as having access to the internet, having access to Wi-Fi, being able to get to the circuit clerk's office and things like that. Could you please tell us about some other obstacles that are felt on the grassroots level um, that prevent folks from getting to the polls? And 
how are those issues being addressed and what can we do in this community to help to address some of those issues? Well, I mean, you know, just getting out there and being an advocate for your community can help with a lot of these issues. Um, just drawing attention because that brings change, right? Um, other issues that we see in grassroots community, I mean, on a grassroots level in community during voting is uh, rights restoration processes. Um, so that in itself is where a person who has been convicted of a felony is trying to register, re-register to vote and get their rights restored. There are so many fees associated with that process that a lot of them are, you know, deterred from completing it, um, not knowing that there are organizations out here that would fund the entire process. And also, um, you know, just the laws surrounding the restoration process of the, the crime or well, the definition of moral turpitude was a huge issue in Alabama that we had to finally just uh, get a definition of. And once we got that definition of moral turpitude, um, which is uh, a list of crimes that you are uh, convicted of and you're not able to vote again, um, we saw that a lot of people were, you know, disproportionately or either not told that they could vote or get the rights back to vote um, because of that issue, mm. not being defined. Absolutely. And I, I do recall that whole conversation around moral, moral turpitude and how it's sort of left open to interpretation. Depending on where you are, you just never know what you're going to get. So helping to define that certainly helps uh, citizens to be able to have, again, it's just about being able to have access to something that we all have a right to and not feel as if it is a constant battle. So you're slowly moving this these obstacles out of the way, making it uh, hopefully someday you know, easy for folks to be able to exercise right. their rights. I want to ask you, you know, in your work, um, I'm sure that, you know, there have been a lot of successes, like you just mentioned some of the successes in 2020, um, you know, in the fight for fairness uh, at the ballot. Uh, but then a few months later, you know, we have these uh, restrictions that are, that are coming down. How do you keep yourself encouraged through these challenges? And then what do you recommend to people who are watching this, who are going to listen to this later in the podcast, what do you recommend to them uh, to just be able to stay in the game and to stay the course? Really, um, mostly when I think about the issues that were faced in the past by the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement and how they made it through adversity and were met with such hardship from the government. Um, you know, I think to myself, we got it easy and, you know, we're, we're much closer than they were and they started, you know, much further back than we did. And so we're picking up the baton and carrying it forward. And so we can't get down because our kids are watching us and they're looking at us to see how they should move forward with their uh, movements. And in large part, last year, the summer of protest was led by Generation Z. And I think as millennials, we should be watching them and, you know, just learning from them as well. So look to the future, look to the future um, generations for, for hope, because I think that they're going to do very well. You're right about that. Every generation brings with them an energy that is important. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that energy can be misunderstood. Uh, maybe sometimes it doesn't align with what worked in the past. 
but there's a lot that can be learned from you know this these new uh, ideas, new people coming along who can who have to then pick up the ball and take it even further, and maybe even learning from this generation to how to pause, how to say you know I need to take a break, I need to I need to you know implement some self care because you can't let the fight run you down. Right. Exactly. How many people do you encounter in, in your field work who talk about and or actively remember Alabama's voting rights struggles over time? Oh, so many. Um, daily, I'm in communication with the youngest person to cross the bridge on Bloody Sunday. So Cheyenne with uh Cheyenne Kreisberg. I'm in communication with Doris Crenshaw, who was Martin Luther King's right hand, and so many others from the Black Belt. Um, Dr. Billie Jean Young, who are unsung heroes of that movement. And so they are constantly telling me about the struggles that they faced back then and um, how it's so similar these days and how we should pay attention to the signs or, you know, pay attention to legislation, just stay informed, but stay encouraged. Wonderful. And I've had the pleasure of meeting several of those folks that, yeah, that yeah it, it's, it is just amazing to, to be able to listen to their stories mm -hmm. and sadly to hear just as in several of the interviews that I've done over these last six months uh, as some of the scholars were sharing with the audience you know the history of, of the of, of the effort to get the vote for black folks in this country and you see the same process over and over and over again uh, can be you know a little bit discouraging but it is because of folks like Ms. Crenshaw and uh, Ms. Cheyenne Webb-Kreisberg and others, we can hear their stories, but we can see that they haven't stopped. Right. I just think it's such a blessing to be able to work with them and learn directly from the tactics that they use and, you know, just to feel their spirit. Yes. It, it's tough, but, you know, it's all love, all love. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I love that uh, the generations working together because yeah. we all have a common goal. And yes. that is to just get us to the finish line. And I believe, I call me overly optimistic, but I'm believing someday we're going to get to the place where this fight is not as exhausting as it is and that we will come to a place where it'll just be ease of access and we'll be able to look back on this as a history lesson. I don't know. I'm not sure. Georgia is a model. And I think that most Southern states are moving towards that. Um, movements are birthed in the South. And I just keep telling everybody the South got something to say. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Alabama, I believe, uh, certainly the South is, is yeah. leading the way in a lot of ways. It, it's exposing a lot of um, a lot of harm. Right. It, it's exposing a lot of things that are intended to cause harm. But at the same time, the response from the boots on the ground, the everyday yeah. folks is very powerful. You know, I'll take a line from what Ashley said earlier in her poem. Uh, Alabama is the center of the world. Sometimes it, is. it feels that way. Sometimes it, it does. Is. So let's go to one more question from our audience. Let's see. This one says, do Black voters matter staff see numbers of people really willing to use their economic power to put pressure on companies and systems? You mentioned before about corporations and putting pressure on them. Are you seeing people who are actually you know, willing to put their economic power into pressuring those companies and systems? Not as of yet. I mean, Carrie, Ro Carrie Washington was a very strong advocate on our behalf um, as an organi organization last year during the general election. Oprah, 
um, did an interview with our co-founder, Latasha Brown, just to highlight and amplify the, the work that we're doing on the ground. Um, and a lot of other actors and actresses, but not so much the influencers um, in, a, in the state of Georgia outside of, you know, you know, the entertainers, which, mm-hmm. which you would think would be, you know, guns blazing. Right. Uh, it's been, it's, it's been scarce. But the message is out there though. Yeah. Because, you know, when you come, when it comes to corporations, everyone is looking at those sponsorships right. and their, their affiliation with their, their dollar, which, which is what we're trying to disband now. You know, the the stronghold that corporations have on our voting process and our access to the ballot and just the control they have over society in general. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, What different forms does electoral engagement take across Alabama today? So I am working currently with Alabama Ford, and we are focused on a shine a light campaign and a build a bridge campaign, which is basically going into communities and doing memorials for individuals that have passed um, due to COVID-19 and the pandemic. And, And that is to show face and to build trust in the community, um, rather than going in and always asking for something, asking for your vote, asking for you to raise this issue as an issue at your city council. Um, it's the electoral process from organizations is shifting more so towards I care rather than what do you care about? You know, how can we pull data from you? Mm-hmm. It's more about, you know, just showing the community some love because at the end of the day, uh, with every campaign, the most important part is the trusted messenger. And that's who we're trying to be as an organization. And that's who we're trying to create for these communities at large around the entire state in a uniform way. And we know from history that what happens in Alabama has a way of impacting the nation and ultimately impacting the world. Mm-hmm. Let's see. As a grassroots organizer, what would you say to someone who has become disenchanted with the United States voting process? I would say I'm right there with you. And by no means, we say this all the time because we run into people who feel just tired. You know, and by no means do we say, you know, go out there and vote, use your power because you already have the power, you know. You know, you decide on how you use that power. And if you want to use that power to vote, then do so. If you feel dis, uh, dismayed with the system, then so are we. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're not the organization that's going to tell you, you know, if you don't vote, you don't have a voice. You do. You do have a voice. And you you can use that voice to be an adverse, um, to have an adverse opinion to the process. And that that voice might be the change that we need to hear. And so I, I would like that person, I would say to that person, you are in power of your own um, facility, your house, your neighborhood, your block, your community, and the people who you are voting into office that, you know, you feel you can't trust, you're actually giving them agency over you, whether you vote for them or not. Mm. So at the end of the day, I would make that decision to to talk and vote with my voice you know, rather than to stay silent, because I'm not, as a 27-year-old woman, not going to give anyone control over my decisions day to day in my community uh, without me having a say. And and that's and that's essentially what how we empower the community. 
You know, at first you got to care for the voters and then you can get the vote. And if I could add also to that, you know, supporting some of what you said is, is realizing that we all have someone that we can influence. You know, it, we may not be, in, all of us may not be in elected office. That might not be what we want to do. And, right. uh, and although we don't have a large platform, but we can in our own way stay connected and stay informed and be able to share ideas that may potentially influence or encourage somebody to just stay connected to the process and make it to the polls to, to participate in these really important elections. Um, so I'm going to um, I'm going to ask you just before we close out uh, our time together, and, and I invite Ashley back on for a closing poem. Um, I want to give you you know an opportunity to share any last thoughts with us about you know what is ahead for um, for the nation. We talked about Generation Z a few minutes ago. Um, what is what are you seeing that generation Generation Z is doing that's a little bit different? from what um, may have been uh, the rules or the, the way that uh, this process moved in the past. And any other thoughts that you might have along those lines? Well, I will close with that. Um, generation Z is interesting to work with. You know, they are the first generation to, you know, just operate on technology like never before. And so a lot of the times when I'm working with uh, Generation Z, they want to they want to reach out digitally. They are going to use social media to revolutionize the, the process, the system and, and whatever else, you know, they would like to see done, especially with council culture. Um, so, I mean, the movements will be televised and also made virtual. In the future. <laughs> so be on the lookout for that. Yeah. The movements will be televised. I remember before that was the, it was the opposite. You know, we were told it was not going to be, but we are definitely seeing uh, that they are going to keep that in front of us one way or the other. Uh, be on the lookout for, especially in Alabama, legislation that is more restrictive um, on our access to the ballot and and limits the the amount of ways that we can vote and participate in the process. Um, that that's going to be very important in the next year or so, especially as we have statewide elections coming up. Uh, legis the legislative session ends on May 30th, May 30th. Okay. And, you know, up and until then, they have the, the power to vote and pass laws. And so we should be hyper vigilant and also making our voices heard with testimony at the legislature if possible. Mm. Um, and that's really all we got. That's our dog in this fight. Ms. Odoms, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we have a few more minutes left in the show, so don't go away. But uh, I, I want to, again, thank you for giving us this time tonight to talk about what's going on in your organization and to give us uh, a look ahead to what's what you believe is coming for this country in terms of some of the improvements that we hope to see and some of the work that still has to go on because you know, the battle is not quite over yet. Yes. Before I close out, I'd like to ask uh, Ashley if she would give us uh, one more poem. I was thinking about what I wanted to read for the last piece of this series, and I came back to the question of why it matters. And of course, today I've been very preoccupied with, um, you know, the, the case um, that everybody knows about, the case of um, uh, the person who murdered George Floyd. Um, and I'm intentionally not saying his name. It's not that I don't remember it. It's just, just like with 45, I think sometimes we need to stop giving 
you know, airtime to certain people. Um, so I wanted to read a poem that kind of reminds me why all of this matters. Um, although the vote, as um, Ms. Odom said, is not the only way we have power, the vote is connected to, um, in many ways, our survival in this country and in this, um, this system of government. So this is a poem um, that I wrote many years ago, but that is unfortunately still very topical. And um, to me, it represents the ultimate reason why it matters, which is that our lives need to be protected um, all the way from the law books to, you know, the streets that we walk on everywhere that we go. It's called, Today I Saw a Black Man Open His Arms to the Wind. And you think I will call him Christ because the whole scene was very poetic. Black man, tall, lanky, just at the edge of a Birmingham sidewalk, arms outstretched, hands hanging from downturned wrists, and oh, are those my sins rippling down his polyester shirt? The streetlight pole his crucifix, oncoming traffic humming its wailing thrum. Me, witness, me, worshiper. But I won't call him Christ, not today, when a man is dead for selling CDs while black, for driving with his girlfriend and her child, black, for walking back from the corner store, black, for not being able to breathe, black, for being alive, black. I can't reach for metaphors today. A metaphor is a luxury I can't quite afford. All I can see is his literal skin, his body, standing in real life before me. And all I can think is that this moment, when he's riding a breeze in the middle of the city, could be his last or mine. Ashley, I think that was a fitting piece uh, to close out this series. I really appreciate it. And um, again, Ms. Odoms, uh, we want to thank you for, for being our guest tonight to help us to uh, bring an end to this six-part series. It's been wonderful having this conversation with you. Thank y'all. Thank you. I mean, Ashley, those poems were amazing and exactly what we needed, especially today, if you know what I mean. Yes. Tanya, thank you so much for this wonderful interview and opportunity just to discuss the issues. I am just elated. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Why It Matters, Black Alabamians in the Vote, presented by the Alabama Humanities Alliance and funded by the Why It Matters Civic and Electoral Participation Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils and funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I'm your host, Tanya Scott-Williams. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Alabama Humanities Alliance, go to alabamahumanities.org.